What's going on, everyone? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 79 of the Adult Education Podcast. Joining me today is best selling author Daniel Pink. 79 episodes. That's pretty cool. Uh, when I started doing this show, I wasn't sure where it was going to end up. So I'm pretty stoked that I hit 79 and still plenty more to come. I got some great episodes lined up to come your way over the next couple of weeks. Adult education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do it is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I know most of you listen via Spotify. Those five stars are huge. If you're using a platform that allows a review, please share a few words too if you have a second. That all also helps the podcast algorithms. Dan Pink is just such an interesting guy. I, I don't even know how to describe him. I mean, he's the author of five New York Times bestselling books, including Drive, To Sell It's Human, Win, and his latest, which we're going to be talking about today, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Now, what I love about Dan is how he's able to think outside the box. I appreciate people that can look at data and take it for face value without inserting politics, religion, or other personal beliefs. It's so hard to find that these days in our world where it just seems like everybody has an agenda. I've been trying to speak with Dan for years, but things just haven't quite worked out, so I'm so glad that we finally connected. Now, this topic in particular is so fascinating. We all know people that say they live life without regrets. Hell, I'm sure I've said it before, too. But is it true? And if it is, is it healthy for us? Why should we ignore those regrets? In this conversation, Dan will discuss how we should learn from those regrets instead of pushing them back and pushing them deep down. Oh, before I forget, there is a special guest in this episode. Uh, I was feeding my daughter lunch while speaking with Dan. So you may hear a little baby voice every now and then. That's life for me right now. So if that bothers you, I'm sorry. Hopefully you can move through it. Uh, before we jump into the conversation, though, just a reminder to leave a rating on adult education. That really, really helps the show get noticed by the podcast algorithm gods. And if you can leave a five-star rating, that's amazing. And you can find us on social media at Adult Education Podcast on Instagram. Well, how's it going? Hello. Let me turn on my camera here for a second. <laughs> okay. We will rock and roll. All righty. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am uh, I'm good. I wish my, my daughter would have taken her nap at her normal time. So if you see me reach off the camera, I'm putting food on her <laughs> table. <laughs> I am the father of three who has worked at home for 20 years, so I feel your pain. <laughs> Uh, and I and I, I I'm the last person on the planet to sit in judgment of that since it's happened to me more times than I can count. So, no worries. How old is your daughter? She is uh, about 14 months. Oh wow! So tiny little person. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. I would I would move the camera, but I think if I move it, I'm going to lose everything no. that I have. Is here, she so. is she walking yet? Not quite. So she stood up a lot earlier than most kids. She was standing and pulling herself up at about three months. Um, so we thought she'd start walking really early, but I think she's just comfortable where she's at. So we'll see. <laughs> I had I had one kid. I mean, I will let you get onto your interview here. But one of our kids, she basically refused to walk until she was like close to two. She was perfectly wow. capable of doing it, but she was more comfortable. She would like walk. She would like go around on her knees. Yeah. And it was like, Eliza, you can walk. And, and we bet, you know, it was our second kid. So we weren't freaked out at all. It's like, oh, you do you. And amazingly, the fact that she learned to, that she began walking at like, whatever, 20 months, 21 months, rather than 13 months, had absolutely zero effect on the further course of her life. That's the important thing. And that's what a lot of people have yeah. told us too, because we were kind yeah. of stressing out about it, you know, seeing other yeah. kids her same age that yeah. were walking and, you know, but we're yeah, feeling good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she does the knee thing too, which kind of drives me crazy. Cause I'm like, you can stand. We know you can. I know, stand. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. 
So, but the funny, the funny thing is, is that, is that, that the daughter that I mentioned that didn't walk until very late ended up spending a lot of her, a huge portion of her teenage years, believe it or not, as a dancer. So she ended up actually spending a lot of time on her feet and using her balance and doing all those kinds of things. So take that for what it's worth. I was about to say, was she an Olympic sprinter or something? Like where did she no, go? <laughs> no, believe me, nobody in my family is able to make the Olympics in any sport of any kind, even if we decided to all emigrate to the smallest nation on the planet. I don't know, Dan, I can see you curling. I can see it. <laughs> that's true. I have the, I have a body for curling. That's true. <laughs> well, I, I do find it interesting that we're catching up this week um, and talking about regrets because uh, there was a big announcement earlier this week from legendary quarterback Tom Brady retiring. And I kept wondering to myself, I wonder what kind of regrets he may have. Or mm. I wonder if regrets kept him playing longer than maybe he wanted to. I, I don't know. I just kind of have to imagine when you dedicate that much time in your life to one particular thing, there's got to be some stuff in there that's driving you or maybe holding you back. I don't think there's any question about that. And and I think that Tom Brady, being a top performer, was able to deal with his regrets. I don't think I've ever heard Tom Brady say, no regrets. I've never looked back on anything that I did and wish I had done things differently. Certainly for him, while playing the New York Giants, he probably had plenty <laughs> of regrets. But... But, um, but, you know, it, it's a really interesting point. If you, if you look at, if you look, I hadn't even thought of this. If you look at, say, in the, in the NFL or any kind of sport, they watch film. They, they look backward to move forward. They look at the film and say, okay, here's what you did wrong. And it feels bad to see yourself doing something wrong, but that's how we get better. And that's the whole point of this book, which is to push back on this idea that it's functional not to have regrets. It's nuts not to have regrets. Everybody has regrets. What really matters is how we deploy our regrets as a as fuel for forward progress. I, I want to touch on that really quick. But first, I, I just have one question that's kind of off the, the radar here because I was yeah. learning more about you uh, before speaking with you. I, I've been familiar with your work, but didn't know what you did previously to your books. And I found out that you were a speechwriter for uh, then Vice President Al Gore. And I have to wonder... <laughs> What, what's the difference between the speechwriter for the vice president versus the president? <laughs> um, well, so A, better offices. <laughs> um, B, uh, I guess more prestige. There's not a lot of prestige in speechwriting. But beyond that, I mean, at some level, it's actually a better gig to, to work for the VP because you have fewer hassles. So something that comes out of the president's mouth is so carefully scrutinized in advance in most cases where... With the VP, there's there's less scrutiny, which means you can, I, I think you can do, um, in some cases, better work. Are you glad that you did it before the invention of social media when everything that happens is watched over and over and over again? <laughs> I am glad that I got out when I did. I actually got out of working in, you know, I entered, I started working in politics early in my working life. And, you know, because I thought that politics was a made, way to make a difference in the world. As I spent, you know, several years in the belly of the beast, I finally came to the conclusion, in part by thinking about anticipated regrets, about saying, okay, man, this is not how I want to spend the rest of my life or the next, even the next 10 years of my life or the next five years of my life, um, because politics is so corrosive. And that was back in 1997, which, which, I, which is now considered the good old days. I know. Pretty wild to think about that, right? Uh, well, Dan, the book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And 
we were just talking about this with football and how football players will sit there and watch film over and over again to make sure they can get the plays perfect. If they make mistakes, it is not beaten into their brains, but they watch it and they see where the mistakes were so they can get it right the next time. And I feel like that's such a great way to tie into what you're talking about with this book, because we as humans kind of ignore those regrets and pretend like they don't mm. exist instead of taking them and learning from them. That's exactly right. And so we've, we've sort of been fed uh, a bill of goods here, Jeff. We, we, we have this idea that saying you have no regrets is somehow an act of courage. That's, that's, that's nonsense. What's, a, what, what's courage is actually staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And once again, what we know from 50, 60 years of research in a wide variety of fields is that everybody has regrets. It is the second most common emotion that people express overall. It's the most common negative emotion. And truly the only people who, who don't have regrets are tiny little kids because their brains haven't developed. You know, five-year-olds don't have regrets because regret is actually really complicated and sophisticated cognitively, and they don't have the muscularity to do that. Uh, people with certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases like, like Huntington's and Parkinson's often can't experience regrets. People with brain lesions, certain kinds of brain lesions can't experience regret. Sociopaths don't experience regret. And one of the things that you see is that the rest of us have regrets. So if, if you don't have regrets, you're either a five-year-old, have brain damage, or you're a sociopath. The rest of us have regrets. And the reason we have them is that regrets make us better. Regrets are functional. Regrets serve a purpose. It's interesting that we've sort of been conditioned to stay away from the negative things in our lives. But when you think about it, the negative things are the things that kind of have a stronger power over us. There was a book I read a while back called The Power of Bad. And it talked about, mm. I want to say it, would, it's like it took four four positive things for us to forget one negative thing. Like those negative things just nice. hold on to us so hard so you'd think just kind of taking a look at those, like I would look at a, at a regret as maybe a negative thing. You take a look at that and you can say, okay, well, how do I better myself from this? That's exactly right. So, so here's the thing, it's clear. Regret is a negative thing. Right. It's a negative emotion. It feels bad. There's no getting around that. The problem is, is that we haven't been taught to deal with negative emotions. So what we do is, it, is on the one hand, we say, I'm ignoring this. Uh, feelings are for feel feelings aren't real feelings are for ignoring i'm ignoring it that's a bad idea that leads to delusion but what also happens sometimes is that we become captured by those negative feelings you know in part because we've been unsuccessful in ignoring them we become captured by these negative feelings and they bring us down and so negative feelings aren't for ignoring and negative emotions aren't for wallowing in negative emotions are for thinking about this is the key here that negative emotions are signals it is a knock at the door. It's like, Jeff, hello, this, I'm a negative emotion. I have something to tell you. And you can, you can say, ah, oh, I don't want to hear it and never answer the door. Or you can say, oh my God, I don't, I'm so wigged out by this. I'm going to go hide under the couch. Or you can open the door and say, okay, what do you got to tell me? And it's usually not that menacing and actually confronting it is one of the best ways to make it less menacing. And when we do that, we learn, regret instructs, regret clarifies, and by not reckoning with regret, we are leaving capacity on the table. When you started this project, you had about 16,000 plus responses from all over the world. I'm wondering, 
how did people respond to regret in other countries? Because I feel like in America, we're so oftenly trained to just ignore mm-hmm. those feelings and, you know, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game kind of attitude. And I wonder, <laughs> like, did people in other countries and across the world share a sentiment like that? Or were they more able to look at those regrets and move forward? It's, a, it's actually a really, really important question. So you're right that I, I went out and collected about 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And actually, what I found is a fair amount of universality in what people regretted. So people ended up regretting the same things over and over. But you make a very good point because I do think there was some, what I had, there were a lot of Americans who would, okay, so first of all, they voluntarily go to the World Regret Survey, this thing that I put up, right. and they can type in their regret. And they begin saying, I have no regrets, <laughs> okay? But, but then they say, I have no regrets, but I do feel really bad about those kids I bullied in school. All right, it sounds like you have a regret. I have no regrets, but I really wish I had traveled more. Okay, it sounds like you have a regret. Whereas people in, the, in other countries were less likely to do that little song and dance performance ahead of time to show that they didn't have any regrets. Uh, and, and even I did a, a piece of survey research where we asked people the question without using the R word. We asked people, we asked 4,489 Americans this question, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? How often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? So I don't say the R word. I'm describing regret, but I'm not saying the word. And we found 1% of people said never. And I think it was 16% said rarely, which means that we had 83% of Americans saying they do this at least occasionally. Why? Because they're human. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's it's impossible to not have a regret about something, at least in my opinion. Exactly. <laughs> it's impossible not to. I, I look at it too, like a, uh, this might be a different way to look at it, but you know, you can certainly learn from regrets. Uh, but I think of comparison too. Like I think of how how I am today versus how I was before. You know, the only place that I can really compare myself is to who I was before I am in this moment. And I think you take a lot of the regrets that you have over time and you realize, okay, did I better myself as I'm moving forward? And that's where that comparison can come in. Right, absolutely. But if you don't do that, if you don't do that work of of saying, you know, if you don't answer that knock at the door, you're not going to get better. So that past you, or that current you, is not going to be any better at then then past you but if you actually do answer that knock on the door if you actually reckon with your regrets in an intelligent way what we know from decades of social science is that reckoning with your regrets can make you better at decision making you're less likely to fall into certain kinds of trap doors of cognitive biases it can make you a better negotiator it can help you solve problems faster it can help make you a better strategist. It can help you find better meaning in your life because this is how we learn. Here's the thing, human beings, the fact that we have this ubiquitous emotion of regret and the fact that it is negative, it, that tells us something. If it were all bad for us, it would have been expunged through evolution. The reason it sticks around is that it's useful. As I said before, regret instructs us. It clarifies us things for us. It points the way. The problem is, is that we have been fed this absurd philosophy that we shouldn't have regrets. And that's just flatly wrong and actually dangerous. Do you think that part of that philosophy comes from the idea of um, free will or everything is meant to happen? Like, do you think there are people that think, well, everything happens for a reason, so I have no regrets because the world has given me what was going to happen. I can't change it anyway. Well, 
as it happens, Jeff, I wondered that very same thing. Look at that. And so in, in this big survey of the U.S. population, the largest survey ever conducted of American attitudes about regret, I asked people two questions and I separated them to make it less obvious what I was after. So I asked people the question, do you think that in general people, human beings have free will, that we have some control over what we do? And I found, I found that overwhelmingly people said, yep, we have free will. Okay, that's interesting. So I also asked the counter question, do you think that everything happens for a reason? And they said, yep. And I'm like, what? You had the vast majority of people believe that they have free will and that everything happens for a reason. Now, this bothered me, but there's something in some ways kind of insightful about that because I think that's a secret to life, that, that there's some things that we can control and some things we can't. And that's how we should be navigating our lives is, 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 is paying attention to what we can control, but recognizing there's some things that are out of control and that life happens and there's not much we can do about it. It's funny because I guess I'd be a weirdo in this survey because I would say no to both in that I ah. think I think the idea that everything happens for a reason is a very arrogant idea because what you're saying is that you know there, there's a cause and a reaction to everything. So if something happens to me, whether it's positive or negative, there's somebody on the other side receiving a positive or negative mm. thing. And it's a very arrogant thought for me to think, well, you know, I deserve this while somebody else deserved the negative of that, you know, or, and free will. I mean, I think, yes, we do have the ability to make a choice. However, at the same time, you are still trapped in social constructs and you're trapped in different situations where maybe you don't necessarily have a choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a super interesting question. I think that part of life is teasing that out, you know, part of life. And that's what also what regret teaches us. Regret actually raises these kinds of fascinating questions. These questions about what do we control and what do we not control? Um, how do we maximize what we have some sovereignty over and how do we actually reinterpret the things that we don't have any control over? Um, you know, it, 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 there's, and it's a little bit of a contradiction, but it's, it's also a, the paradox of being a live sentient human being who is thinking. Um, and, you know, the other thing about this is that, you know, there's some interesting research in personality psychology talking about looking at our lives as narratives, looking at our lives as stories. And so the question that raises is that if our life is a story, are we the author of that story or are we a character in that story? And the answer is yes, we're both. And, and actually teasing that out is a big part about how we fashion a life well lived. I mean, Dan, can we just have a simple straight answer to one of these things? Why does everything have to be so complicated? Well, you know what? It's actually not that comp it, it's less complicated than we think. You know, it's less complicated than we think. Here's the thing. Here's, here's what's not complicated. Everybody has regrets. Regrets make us better. And what we know from these 16,000 regrets is that around the world, people regret the same four things. They regret not doing the work and building a stable foundation for themselves by taking care of their health, by saving money. They regret not being bold uh, by you know, things, everything from not traveling to not speaking up to not starting a business, to not asking out a crush. They regret doing the wrong thing. So, you know, regrets, moral regrets about bullying or infidelity or anything like that. And they regret not staying in touch, not having connections with people they care about. Um, and so it's actually fairly simple. When, when 16,000 people tell you what they regret, at the same time, they are telling you what they value. And over and over again, we show that people value these things and these are the components of a good life. And what's more is that we have a pile of science showing us 
when we feel that spear of regret, we know what to, there's a way to, to, to deal with it that's relatively simple and straightforward. It's a really interesting way to look at it, and it makes perfect sense. I just hadn't really thought about it from this perspective that when people tell you their regrets, they're sharing with you what means the most to them because that's the, st the stuff that they didn't do means so much to them and they wish they did. And I never really and, put it in that way. And it sticks with them. That's yeah. the thing. That's the thing. When these 16,000 people list their regrets and say, tell me one significant regret in your life, they don't say, oh, Three years ago, I bought a gray car rather than a blue car. Right. That doesn't stick with them. Uh, uh, last night, I had macaroni and cheese for dinner, but I realized I should have had, you know, a club sandwich. They, you know, they don't. That's not the regrets they're talking about. They were. They talk about I should have done the work. I should have worked harder in school. I should have saved more money. I should have taken care of my health. They say, oh, I should have asked her out on a date. I should have asked him out on a date. I should have started that business. They say, oh. I can't believe I bullied kids when I was younger. I'm ashamed of that. That's terrible. I can't believe I cheated on my spouse. They say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I lost touch with this good friend. And now it's really awkward to reach out. Should I reach out? That's what, and so the things that stick with us is again, these are signals. These are messages. It's telling us what we value the most. And so this negative emotion of regret, instead of resisting it, we should listen to it because it's telling us what makes life worth living. And maybe what we should focus a little bit more effort on moving forward. Absolutely. Um, is it interesting to you, because I find this interesting, that you got responses from all around the world, some 16,000, 17,000 responses to this, and you came down to four of the most common. It's interesting to me. You know, you always hear that phrase, we're more alike than we are apart or more alike than we are different. People around the world are having the same regrets and the same standard, you know, sort of moral values. I find that so fascinating. Like we always think like we're so different from people in yeah. Ukraine or wherever, Iraq, China. But realistically, we all have very similar values no matter what your religious beliefs are, no matter what your situation is. It all kind of comes down to very similar things. That's exactly right. There are some differences when it comes down to value. So in this category of moral regrets, there are some things like you don't hear many people saying in the United States, uh, I really regret not respecting my parents, where you see other countries that have a greater value of authority and sanctity that will say, oh, I, oh, I really regret, you know, not, uh, I really regret not um, respecting my parents enough. But beyond that, you know, what, what do people want out of life anywhere? They, they want some stability. They want to, they, 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 we are a species that is aware of its own mortality. So we don't want to waste our time here. So we want to do something. We want to lead a psychologically rich life. We want to do the right thing. Um, and there is some consensus on what the right thing is. And we want to have love and connection to other people. And that's it. If I were to show you this database, Jeff, and show you, a show you the columns in this database of 17,000 regrets and show you the column. So there's a column that shows the, that, that, that where people have written their regret. And then the next column says, where they're from. So is it US or, or Canada or somewhere else? If it's US or Canada, it tells you the state. Um, and, and if I were to, then, then we know the, the gender identity and we know the age. And if I were to block out those other columns and just show you the regret, I think that you might have a hard time distinguishing a regret between who, like which one of these people is a 51 year old dude in Columbus, Ohio, and which one of these is a 27 year old woman in Malaysia. That's so interesting. And is it weird that in my head, this 
the mental picture of this database is the same as like somebody holding nuclear launch codes. Like you with sitting on this database of 17,000 responses could do so much damage to the world. <laughs> you know, it's, that's it. I, you know, I never thought of it that way. It's like, it's like I need to have a, like a military aid to carry around the football like the president has to make sure it doesn't go into, you know what? Actually, if this database of regrets got into people, it got into enemy hands, I, I don't know what they would do with it because it's basically, you know, but think about it. It's like, Oh my God, we know what people value the most. Maybe we should maybe we should actually invest money in giving people a stable foundation. We know what people value the most. Maybe we should encourage people to take a risk and speak out rather than be autocratic. We know what people value the most. Maybe we should not have a government that's a kleptocracy, but it should be transparent and open and just. Maybe we should build policies that allow people to come together and care for each other. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it, it could be like a, it, it, you know, whatever the, it, you know, it's like, it's like a negative, it's like a negative nu nuclear bomb. It like builds things up rather than tears things down. Yeah, it's like the opposite of my thought. Instead of being dangerous, yeah. it's actually amazingly yeah. helpful if people were able to see it and actually look at it and figure out where to go next, which is, a, I guess, exactly. a good reason why you put this book out. Uh, I do want to yeah. talk about the three-step process that you have in here, um, because I, I like the way that you, you you lay these out, the lift the burden through self-disclosure, reframe the situation through self-compassion, extract a learn a lesson through self-distancing. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about these. Sure. So so we've never been taught how to deal with negative emotions in general and regret in particular. And there's there's some things that you can do. First, you know, one of the things that you can do, as you mentioned, is is self-compassion. A lot of times when we feel regret, when we look back and say, oh, if only I hadn't done that stupid thing, if only I had chosen better, we beat ourselves up. Um, a lot of times, the way we talk to ourselves is far more brutal and cruel and 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 unforgiving than we would ever talk to somebody else. And so, one step is just treat yourself with self-compassion. A concept pioneered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, and recognize that your missteps are part of the human condition, and they don't fully define you. The next thing is to disclose. And I got to tell you, we should be talking about our regrets. There shouldn't be a, tat a taboo on them. We should be talking about our regrets because when we disclose, we lift, we relieve the burden of them. And when we convert these blobby negative emotions into specific concrete words, we defang them and we begin to make sense of them. And you don't even have to disclose them to other people. Simply writing about your regret. If you have a regret, write about it for 15 minutes a day for three consecutive days. And that's going to help you get better. Um, that's going to help you find a lesson to do better. And then finally, what we want to do, so we, we, we sort of reframed how we look at ourselves. We've disclosed it to try to make sense of it. Then we've got to find a lesson in it. And the way to do that is something called self-distancing, where we are much better at solving other people's problems than our own problems. And so one way to find a lesson from it is, I think my favorite one is just simply say, okay, suppose your best friend had come to you with this regret. What lesson would you say this teaches her? And what would you tell her to do next? And you do it that way, people always know. Self-compassion is one of the most important things. I don't know when we took a turn where we yeah. just beat ourselves up so much. I mean, I guess a case could be made for social media, but at some point we just started beating ourselves up all the time to a point where we're just we're just not happy with ourselves. And there's no other reason for it than just ourselves. Like we are the reason that we are unhappy. I, I just wish self-compassion could be something people would just recognize a lot more in general. Amen. And, and I think that what we tried instead of self-compassion was the ill-fated self-esteem movement, 
where we just tried to pump people up for no reason. And so we gave everybody a trophy and we we said, we said everybody is awesome. And, and what we know about self-esteem is that self-esteem is important. You should have some self-esteem. There's no question about that. But if we over-index on self-esteem, there are so many downsides. If people feel too great of a sense of self-esteem, they don't try very hard. Um, uh, self-esteem is often comparative. And so what you do is you, you have to feel bad, often have to feel bad about somebody else to feel good about yourself. And so it can lead to narcissism. It can lead to bias against outgroups. So what we don't want is excessive self-esteem or self, excessive self-criticism. What we want is self-compassion. Here's the thing. Talk to yourself the way you talk to a friend. If you do that, you're halfway there. Well, Dan, it's uh, an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I've been anxiously looking forward to this conversation. So my one regret is that I didn't tire my daughter out too much before, so she would have <laughs> taken a nap when she normally does. Uh, but I, I just appreciate your work. I appreciate this book. It's called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Is there a centralized place that people can go if they want to find out more about you or the book? Sure. Just go to danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. There's more information about the book and all kinds of other great stuff. Thank you so much for your research. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Big thank you to Dan Pink for his time today. Just such an interesting guy, right? So much fun to talk to. One day, I'd just love to grab a coffee with him and really dive deep into some things. I just find that my brain works on overdrive when I speak with people like Dan, and I need that in my life. I need more of it. I just love when that happens. And big thank you to all of you as well. I always appreciate the fact that you make adult education a part of your day. Until next time, be well. Be well.